Hi. I got a tape I want to play. Just what do you think you're doing, Dave? Your move, creep. Take me to the volcano! So why don't you make like a tree and get out of here? Come with me if you want to live. This town needs an enema. Like I said, I need a bacchiatomy. Yes, that's a human ear, all right. I got a bad feeling about this. So it's come to this cage match. Round two. Cage cast. Here we go. It's happening. It's unstoppable. It's a snowball. It's a good one here. I'm Eric. I'm Charlie. This is a movie podcast. We love talking movies and we love Nicolas Cage. We love this guy. Absolutely. Yeah. If our last episode about Vampire's Kiss wasn't clear enough, we're going to big fans. Big fans. And we're going to be hitting up some Cage. We mm-hmm. didn't know where to start hitting up Cage, but. Yeah, One movie was towards the top of both of our lists for ones we had to do. Adaptation. Yeah, it's weird how that worked because it's such an anti-Nick Cage type of uh, movie when you really look at the full scope of what's going on with this guy. Yeah, we did our own little like private Nick Cage list of what Nick Cage we wanted to hit up on our build to 200. Yeah. And I thought, you know, the triad would have come up. Con Air, The Rock face off hey. but both of us went uh, away from that i went more for like honeymoon in vegas yeah probably to the you disappointment went, like... of everyone who listens to this <laughs> yeah because <laughs> as soon as when i told my wife i was like yeah we're doing this nick cage mini marathon she's like oh con air yeah first movie she said i was like no not gonna be doing con air we're doing sunny we're gonna His do <laughs> james franco exactly. movie about a male prostitute <laughs> No, we're, yeah, we're doing some of the some of the weird ones, but some uh, some pivotal ones. I feel like. Yeah, man, I wanted to do Valley Girl. I could talk about that boy's heart shaped chest hair, yeah. configuration, and Deborah Foreman. We could have done Valley Girl, uh, but we chose to do some. I, I think we wrote maybe, down a uh, list of like forty <laughs> Nicholas Cage movies we wanted. to Well, do. yeah. So, as soon as you start looking at the list of like, well, we can pick four movies. What should we pick? And then you're going, there's a there's a hundred. There's a 20 movies here. There's a second national treasure? No, I... (laughs) (laughs) Book of Shadows? That's... Yeah. Too many treasures. And... But Adaptation was what we both singled out. I think that this was a pretty important movie for me. One of those movies we've talked about before, also when talking about Nicolas Cage movies, that can kind of change the way you look at some things. Yeah, this was a movie that came on for me in... When I was 20, 19. Yeah, yeah I was and, 21. Uh, and we... You, it, it was one of those like, oh, I love movies. Yeah. Okay. Right. I'm in a movie theater. I'm loving movies. I was going to... This is my thing. I was I was going to art house exactly. cinema. All right. I got movies, you know, and it was all like a lot of these three guys that are so defining to me for that 99 to 2002, 2003 era. Spike Jones, mm-hmm. right there at the top. Like Pedro Almodovar mm. and uh, Paul Thomas Anderson, those sure. years. That's when I was like seeing Magnolia, being John Malkovich. You know, all about my mother. And then a year later, it'd be like, talk to her. You know, yeah. <laughs> uh, Punch Drunk Love, uh, an adaptation. Like these guys were. This was all like I knew the movies. You know, we were yeah. you and me. We were seeing foreign films at the school library. Exactly. Right? I think what was so interesting at that time was that the early and mid '90s was such a mainstream onslaught of the same shit over and over and over again. Yeah. Good stuff, but like action films and the English Patient type dramas. Sure. And then all of a sudden, yeah. And then late '90s, these guys were able to kind of start experimenting and 
switching things up. And I remember watching Being John Malkovich in like 99 or something. Yeah. Renting it. I was, just, in, I was it, like 18, like freshman yeah. in college, going to see it at a, at a movie theater that doesn't exist. And now. you're just going like, how did this get made? How yeah. did someone approve and finance? And and then it's like, such a sad movie. <laughs> and I love it. Wait, do I like sad movies? Wait. Oh, and it, it, it kind of, yeah, it changes how you think about movies. Because you're like, well, I like all this fun stuff over here. But I'm also liking this kind of upsetting, mind-bending drama it it really and john me. cusack i'm a big spike jones fan yeah and this is like he's like probably the first music video director whose name i knew right <laughs> right like he did you don't know how much fun my friends and i age 13 had wearing our sabotage gear <laughs> and filming ourselves kicking in like their fucking parents bedroom door and like we spent weekends dressing up with fake mustaches awesome. and short sleeve dress shirts and long neckties. Man, that was the fun. Mm. Those are the <laughs> Once days. I found out that this guy was also the one who was doing like, you know, Bjork videos, the Weezer videos, the Buddy Holly video, mm-hmm. you know, Biggie videos, like this is the same guy. All the best videos are being done by the same guy. Yeah. And then he's making a movie. I was excited for being John Malkovich, man, because I loved Spike Jones already. So yeah, this is like you know when music videos were music videos were huge in the '90s and or into the 2000s, mm-hmm. right? TRL. They actually played them on MTV, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, obviously the '80s had you know all the iconic Peter Gabriel videos and the you know set the medium, right? But then guys like Spike Jones and Gondry, what they were doing in the '90s was just so like. Man, that's the era for me watching music videos, mm-hmm. right? That's when I was 13, 14 years old and would actually just watch MTV still at friends' houses. <laughs> and you're like waiting for the Christopher Walken dancing video to come <laughs> yeah, on. Yeah, man. Where is it? You know how huge Praise You was? <laughs> yeah. When it's just Spike Jones acting like a like a windsuit wearing dick bag in a mall. Again, that was one of those, yeah, like they're just this is the video. They're just uh I love it, but it's just doing new things. Thinking outside the box. That right? Daft yeah. Punk video with the with the dancing in the around the room, around the world. Mm-hmm. The funk. Spike Jones, man. He did all of them. He did every video. And like Mark Romantic. One sure, of those other sure. guys, right? There was like three of them. They were doing all the best ones every single year, right? Been a long way since Neil mm-hmm. Young's This Notes for You. <laughs> <laughs> or whatever other video of the year. Like Spike Jones went from winning. You know, the Video of the Year awards. At the same time, he was doing magazine work with, like, Grand Royal, Beastie Boys magazine in the mm. 90s that I would read at Sawyer's News and not pay for. <laughs> you know? Working for, like, Sassy Magazine. You know, the cool girls. Like, this guy did nothing but cool shit. Mm-hmm. There's a reason he's, like, a workaholic in Lost in Translation. <laughs> like, this guy puts his brain into this work. I love the man. An adaptation is so good. This is such a great movie. It's such a movie. It's such a experience to watch. It's yeah. something uh, you couldn't do in a book. Man. Just like you can't do <laughs> like, the book The Orchid Thief into a movie. I just, without making it into a movie about a guy writing a movie about the people yeah. in the movie. I love, some, the I love something that can't be done in another way. Yeah. And I just I think not every book has to be a movie. Not every movie has to be a, you know, a musical. <laughs> not everything has to be something else. 
but this is such a yeah i remember this this is such a memorable movie yes to me like it's been a long time since i watched this first saw it in the theater uh bought it on the dvd of course but probably watched it like one other time since then <laughs> and watching it again this week it was like man I, I remember everything about this movie wow it was really interesting to just be like uh to revisit it to uh feel like I, I remember sitting in the theater watching I know. it. It was Takes such a right moment. It was such right? a like moment in the theater because I went and saw it by myself. <laughs> nice. Uh, actually saw it as a double feature with another Spike director, uh, Spike Lee's 25th Hour. Wow. That's went, a... saw, went and saw that afterwards. <laughs> so. Wish I'd have seen this second probably. Head to cause... head, who's your favorite Spike? Uh, you know, <laughs> Spike Lee's done about four. 50 movies. Yeah, I don't know if... I mean, so he's got a good number of good movies, but Spike Jones just for batting average. Spike Jones has the gotta four. Be, yeah. Big four, right? Being John Malkovich, which is one yeah. of my... That's like the best movie of 99. Eyes Wide Shut. You know, that's... <laughs> I don't know. Magnolia. Like, those are the ones, but it's a contender, right? Yeah. And Adaptation, I can't tell you... Punch Drunk Love, you know, uh, Talk to Her. Like, let's see, is that it? Yeah, seems adaptation. like adaptation must be the best of that one. And then, but then he's just—you talk about how the Orchid Thief might be tough to adapt, so tough that you make a whole movie about how tough it is to adapt it. Mm-hmm. Then he adapts where the wild things are. Yeah, really. Which feels impossible to adapt into a set in the where the wild places are world. That's gonna be a fun one to do. <laughs> and then her, damn, that's a Mount Rushmore right there. Four big movies, that's big. And he hasn't done one since her, right? Like I don't a, think not so. a feature film. Which I can't believe he's still 10 doing years now. Music and TV stuff. But yeah. Yeah. Maybe he's just like, I am good. <laughs> yeah. I get the feeling that making movies is hard. Yes. Uh the very, very opening of this movie is the like is the like behind the scenes footage of being John Malkovich, where John Malkovich is yelling at everyone <laughs> to hurry up. But it, as it, he came off like a good well, guy yeah. there. He was really sticking up for for crew, right? But I, I definitely have that memory. Again, I remember that from watching it originally going like, is the actor supposed to be telling everyone what to do? <laughs> when you're John Malkovich and you're in a movie that's based around you being John Malkovich, you get to tell people what to do. Yeah. <laughs> you know that is a no, specific situation you're allowed that to was such an eye-opening like wow this guy's really telling everyone else what to do yeah when i think of what a pain in the ass it must be to make a movie you see a little behind the scenes thing just a, a shot of like john cusack and katherine keener sitting in a lobby at work and there's just 50 people milling about all doing something and all moving in front of each other it's just like pain in the ass to make yeah, a, right. an, a low budget movie right golly and he is just so creative and i you know i like i said very formative and i'm so happy watching adaptation now knowing how much it meant to me in 2002 mm-hmm. see that i love it just as much more and it looks just as good and it sounds just like it yeah. reads just as well the acting is even better than i thought it was then and it won like oscars then yeah it's a movie that has all the tricks right and you don't see them or care about them while right. you're watching it because it is such an engaging story yeah, that's a good way of and characters it. that's the way yeah it's like you look back it's like well you could pick it apart because it's got such it's got so much well there's so many things that could get messed up it is not easy playing twins. It's yeah. tough to first, play twins. First and foremost, yeah, the Nicolas Cage performance in this movie yeah. as both Charlie and Donald 
the fictitious uh, twin brother. Yeah, Kaufman. right. The Kaufman brothers. Uh, it's flawless. It's like, incredible. Yeah. You never see the strings. You never see the double. You never for once think it's a guy talking to himself. It's they are, it's amazing. They are twin brothers who the differences are pronounced, and he knows how to do these differences without being without using. You know, we say that this does use tricks, of course, but the the strings are so not there <laughs> on all these things. Where there's no tricks with makeup or hair. They both have kind of the same hairline. <laughs> they mm-hmm. both have similar builds, right? It's not like one's the like one's just more confident. Yeah, and one doesn't care as much, and the smarter one is just neurotic and just like overthinks everything to death. Right? Char- Charlie Kaufman just has this rambling, self hatred inner monologue going at all times from the very beginning opening credits, and he sweats and he hunches and he looks at the ground a lot. And yeah, Donald is this naive, <laughs> fun, engaging, confident to all hell. Yeah, just like. But but all the things Charlie doesn't want to be or, or doesn't <laughs> right. like. He, he kind of resents it, That's but he's not. Yeah, it's just this special odd relationship. He sees that, him as obnoxious. Yes, more than anything. He's his little brother, except yeah. he's a twin. They're twin, yeah. <laughs> and he hates the stuff that he sees. That's also kind of him. Yeah. But they're so different in ways that aren't pronounced differences. They just feel like real, actual, lived-in brother differences. Something about little shit like Nicolas Cage crawling into <laughs> his bedroom. Because he just comes up, he's like lying on his hardwood floor, just like, my back, rolling around. Mm-hmm. And yeah, just him moving while the other brother is just annoyed at him being in his bedroom. But it's so real. And and, it's just and, him playing yeah, him. The way Cage just has this kind of whispered slur that Charlie Kaufman does a lot. And yeah. how Donald is just, yeah, they're just such different, but... They share the, sh- the same genes, uh, yeah, as, as Charlie as he puts said. it. He's, uh, he's yeah, playing like remarkable. twin Joey Slotniks, and it's just seamless. Yeah. You never are distracted by it for 2002. I've seen movies with uh, you know split-screen characters now that don't look as good mm-hmm. as this. This never feels like anything but two guys occupying the same space. Now, give me, we would, there was the great comedy last year. The unbearable weight of massive talent. Yeah. The Nick Cage as himself and Pedro Pascal movie, right? Yes. And Nick Cage plays the younger version, Nicky, of himself. Mm-hmm. The, like, still hasn't lost the hairline, floppy bangs, leather jacket, Nick Cage. Wild at heart, Nick Cage. <laughs> and that, at every moment, feels like this is some weird, <laughs> like, uncanny valley CGI, like... <laughs> Absolutely, Nikki feels weird in this scene, man. No matter how good Nick Cage smooches, yeah, it's fun that one, but it never, yeah, it it felt like a like you're watching a fun trick happen, right? This just feels like they got two of the same guy, yeah. For Nicholas Cage is such a weird looking guy. He looks like we've talked about this before. This teeth and the bridge of his nose and his constant hair. Again, this hair in this movie. It's the hair insane. in all in everyone's every, hair in every, this movie. Every hair. But Nick Cage has this bird's nest of a red balding afro <laughs> that I guess is supposed to be like Charlie Kaufman's hair. Charlie Kaufman looks the, like the John Glazer. I've never seen a guy take himself down so hard in a movie. Like yeah, man. Charlie Kaufman writing his himself as this <laughs> character is so pathetic. I mean so unbearably pathetic. At but times. at the same time the the hubris 
of this pathetic guy to also completely write himself into his movie Mm -hmm. and make the movie about him writing himself into his movie. That's a thing. That's a career killer. Also, this movie of the book I'm adapting, I'm making it about me. So I want to. So I didn't really do any research on like how I know Susan Orlean had to be like talked into letting this happen. Yes, because they make her character out to be, you know, they they make up things about real people. <laughs> yeah, which this, is crazy. This movie both has real people, kind of like blurring this, doing this Abbas Kiristami blurring real life thing, yeah. and has fictional people playing real people. But then also has some real people playing other fictional people. And it's also about all the people that are being portrayed. And it seems like a lot of it is like from the real book. Yes. Especially the first half. And then in the second half, we get a totally fictitious made up thing. <laughs> yeah. Where where Susan Orlean, our, our author, is like a drug addict. Yeah. And uh, we'll get to that. But who the hell hires Charlie Kaufman to... <laughs> The guy who wrote Being John Malkovich, one of the most wildly original, bizarre, offbeat, original stories yeah. ever. They go, I got a book I want you to adapt. <laughs> who does that? It's who hires him pl- to do yeah. that? Like, was he actually hired to adapt this book into a yeah, movie? And was... then he actually was having frustration doing it and then actually wrote this movie. Yes. Yes. That's what I'm to That's understand. Exactly when Susan Orlean was prevent- <laughs> presented the script to this movie... No part of her assumed she would play into the movie in any way, mm-hmm. let alone be one of the main characters of the movie, let alone doing snorting orchid drugs <laughs> in the third act. Like, no, she had no idea this any of this was happening. And, and she's, I, I, I don't f- think anyone did, right? No. Like, the people who hired him did not hire him to make this movie. No, they hired him to adapt the orchid. But why would you do that? I know. Why would you hire a I guy mean, who makes up his own story? Like... There's a million people that was Because that's what happens, right? When a hot screenwriter comes in. <laughs> I guess. Being John Malkovich was something that nobody had ever seen before. It was mm-hmm. so good. Remember when we watched it just like a few years ago in a group? And it's just like, well, this is even better yeah. than in 1990. What a tight, amazing, original movie. And a movie where I remember it too being like, kind of billed as like, this wacky comedy. Which kind of adaptation had that vibe too. I remember yeah. being advertised like... He, it's crazy. Him. You've never seen anything like it. And then it's like a guy throwing a beer can at John Malkovich. And it's like, <laughs> right. then you watch it. And you're like, this is this fucked. is some existential this fuck is shit. This is like, fucked. I am drive, thinking about this driving home so hard. I'm going to die. I'm going <laughs> to yeah. die one day. This has made like, me confront myself in ways I was not expecting. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and then they're like, I got a great book about flowers that I want you to to adapt. You know, maybe they just saw this unique way that this man looked at Whoever, what you could do yeah. with both film and fantasy and your own life and say, you know what? We don't know how to film this really, really good story. Yeah. New York Thief is a really good story. Susan Orlean's a very, she's a very funny that author. John LaRoche is quite a character. God, Chris, Co- Chris Cooper in this movie, man. I could, is... I, but the, I could have watched a whole movie just about Chris Cooper yeah. as John LaRose. I could have watched the... the or I, I could have watched the Chris Cooper, Meryl Streep full movie. Yeah. What? I love when, when like, you don't ex- always know which chemistry you're going to get with actors and actresses, right? I loved how much I love the chemistry of Streep mm-hmm. and Cooper in this. I love when I'm surprised at how much I love an on-screen relationship, especially when it's unexpected. As perfect as I think Clooney and Jennifer Lopez are in Out of Sight, 
Mm. I was less surprised to see how how much I got into like Nick Nolte and Barbara Streisand in The Prince of Tides. (laughs) Sometimes I don't know what on-screen duo is going to click, right? But man, the casting of Chris Cooper as LaRoche and Streep's like New Yorker writer, socialite life, who's also just charmed by a intelligent man right that's what he is he's so he's, different but he's, he is smart he's uh authentic he's he's living this life yeah that she feels that she's not living he's I, so yeah. real he's such a character everybody's such a character in this but so real and LaRoche is just such a he's one of these guys who who knows that everybody assumes he's stupid because mm. he's missing all of his incisors <laughs> he a lot of teeth. And he looks like a any Florida gator he's, rustler. Yeah, he looks like a he's he lives in the Florida swamps. He collects these orchids. He looks like a guy that lives in the swamp. Talks like a guy that lives in the swamp. Yeah. And then is spouting off 18 different scientific versions of a plant <laughs> name. Listens to Charles Darwin on audio tape. Yeah, these these yeah. smart unassuming men who also do, doesn't seem impressed with his own actual knowledge. He knows he's smart, but he it doesn't impress him. I love the bit where he's telling her about how he had the largest collection of Dutch mirrors in the world at one point. <laughs> yeah. He had 60 fish tanks worth of tropical fish and how he does. I, I knew a guy in Portland once who was like, yeah, he was a sheep farmer in New Zealand and then he owned a bookstore in you know, Asia somewhere. And then it's, it's just <laughs> yeah. like, how do you have time for all this? How do you, yeah. even do, how do you live such- that life? And I think, you know, both of us, we, we kind of have this appreciation because we're, we've both been drawn into, you know, an obsession with something. When you really get mm-hmm. interested in something, it's fun to kind of throw yourself into an interest. And it presents Chris Cooper uh, plays this man as a guy who throws himself wildly and full into these wild interests. When he's obsessed with turtles, he's going to find out everything about <laughs> turtles, man. He and his mother once had the largest collection of 19th century Dutch mirrors in the world. You might have seen a feature in Mirror World Mirror magazine. World, 1988? Yeah. <laughs> I got to hear somewhere in the van. He's digging around the van. Just going around. It'd be like, you know, he's just known for... It's like the people that go around trying to set the dumbest Guinness World Records just to do things. But he's not doing it for any out of any kind of hubris. Yeah. He just wants to consume and, and fully know something before he... It's just amazing, right? It's a different kind of brain. Yeah, and and her desire to want to do or want to love something as much as he loves the things that he loves, her desire to live that fully. I've, yeah, and and Charlie Kaufman as a writer who's trying to unpack all this into a story, you know, his shortcomings as a person connecting to other people and how he has this, and uh, yeah, it's like he's trying to write a movie where no one has any epiphanies, and it's a movie <laughs> yeah. full of epiphanies. He's trying to write a movie where nothing happens, everything happens. Like movies, this doesn't. What? <laughs> no one else does a movie like this. This movie has so many layers. There's the, the so more many you things think about this. in this movie that other movies do parts of, and this movie does so much of every different thing. Like this movie has the full, you know, like from the dawn of time yes, montage man. that Tree of Life tried to do, right? I and <laughs> tried just, to do Tree of Life well, went through did. dinosaurs, it did. man. Yeah, but this movie—that's like one minute of this movie. You know, like, like I the, forgot we get a full like Dawn of Man. Dawn montage Man. in adaptation. I uh, forgot it. I love dinosaur it. asteroid. I impact. love getting that ape down there, man. I I'd love to see a full Spike Jones, Charlie Kaufman Dawn of Man movie. 
Sure. That's the great thing about adaptation is they have it has all these different layers that you can choose to you know enjoy as deeply and, and unpack all the things as you want. But it it's its own movie on every one of them. Donald and Charlie could have easily been their own movie. Cooper and Streep easily could have been their own movie. Just writing the Orchid Thief alone, like, easily yeah. could have been its own. Anything of this could have been its own whole thing. I would have watched the shitty Donald movie, right? <laughs> Even the Donnie movie is just like, well, you know, the there's, three? A, there's yeah. a recipe for the success. I hear it's the best script of the year, yeah. <laughs> the three. Yeah, it, and... Uh, yeah, there's just such a feeling of while watching this movie that it's like, God, I just love what's what I'm watching. I just, yeah. I'm just so engaged with it. The moments where it's uh, talking about the book and he's reading the book parts aloud, it's like this is this sounds like a good book. I should right? read this yeah. book. Susan Orlean is a very good author. And uh, the moments of like the bees pollinating the flowers and all this like stuff that really could, like you said, could have gone wrong or could have been totally. silly. Like absolutely work could have been. It's absolutely feel correct and and give you that emotional impact you want. And I think more importantly, the sum is bigger than the parts. Like all the parts are working, and the the whole experience at the end of the movie and what you walk away from is just like everything. It like, takes it takes so many you know mood kind of mood shifts and you know jumps around time so much it's a linear movie but you know it jumps around a lot into fiction or into fictionalized reality mm -hmm. and back into reality and for a non-attentive film goer you could get really lost and then eventually find yourself going like wait Meryl Streep wants to kill the guy <laughs> you know it's I'm sure it's really easy but like so all of those shifts could have really been jarring you know, they are just really thrown in there. Now we're back in the swamps. Now we're in this guy's, you know, midlife crisis. You know, now we're yeah. in this guy's, like, worst professional and personal crisis, the lowest, most suicidal moment of his life when his brother gets a million-dollar deal. <laughs> Let me tell you, man, if I've had a bad week and then you're like, I got a $1 million podcast offer, just me. <laughs> <laughs> the worst news. And you're not the Donnie of this. Yeah. Or yeah, I, I came to you and I was like, I got a really good idea for a podcast. It's all about like farts. We're just gonna fart <laughs> on the podcast, and then a week later, Rate I'm like, my farts. My like, yeah. uh, my agent says I could get high sixes for fart cast. Yeah, and then I, <laughs> you I, would your agent. <laughs> <laughs> this is well, you know, your agent that I've glommed onto. Yeah. yeah, I know. You know, just this idea of writing a movie about the orchid thief that's about writing the orchid thief. While a guy is writing about writing the orchid thief, sounds shitty. That sounds bad, right? That sounds like probably should have just written the orchid thief, right? Probably should have just got her to do this, right? No, this idea seems like the idea. I think what he's Charlie Kaufman said when he pitched this idea, it was just like, well, this could be it. Mm. Like I could be done after this one. Oh yeah, now I'm the star, and there's two of me. Right, I yeah, you didn't have what? to invent the brother. Like, for all the shit that Shane Black got about living the Hollywood life, at no point was Shane Black's like, yeah, and then the second me comes into the scene. Right. Like, for a guy who got run out of town for ego for a while, right? He wasn't writing movies where he's like, then I'm the star, you know? Get this Oscar winner to play me. I want Streep, like, wow. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this is... Now, Charlie Kaufman obviously uh, made some good choices. That guy's had an amazing career. He's done nothing but hits. He's done okay. Nothing done but okay. the best stuff. But yeah. this feels like a risk. 
that this worked out as well. Can you name me the other good twin performances? Mark Ruffalo in that you know, HBO miniseries. I was trying to think of uh, good twins. The only one I can really think of where I'm like on this level is, is uh, Dead, Dead, Dead Ringers. Ringers. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's the That's only other one I could Pretty think high of. praise, right? Dead Ringers, that is a twins performance. This one? Because there's always good, there's always some movie where it's like Rob Lowe playing his twin brother or something. You know, there's going to be something <laughs> like that. Steven Weber's Dr. Jekyll and yeah. Mrs. Hyde. <laughs> But uh, Tim Daly, one of the wings guys. Yeah, none of those ever like feel uh, anything more than a gimmick, right? Like the idea of like an actor playing his, his yeah. twin. This is not a, a Marlon Wayans yeah. kind of movie, <laughs> right? This is, you know, such a gimmick idea that never did I think of them as Nicolas Cage, you know? Yes, yes, exactly. You never think it's Meryl Streep. Or Chris Cooper, or right. yeah, yeah, they they disappear into these roles. All three, all of just these like are... the tricks. Like it's you see the magician telling is telling you what he's doing. Yeah, in the opening scene, he's going to tell you exactly what's going to happen, and uh, you just let him do it. You for, just... for three amazing actors, this is like this is right up there with the best of all of their work. Mm-hmm. Right, this is one of my favorite street performances. She was so good, and I just I loved what she did with this. Yeah. Chris Cooper is next level. Just a totally different human, right? Different Chris, person. Chris Cooper is like, I want to follow that character around for yes, a week. That's the kind of guy that a is week. just would be in a 15-season reality show. Exactly. If he was a LaRoche, know. you know? Like if the Tiger King was a genius. <laughs> right. That's John LaRoche. That's like, it's like uh, basically it's painting with John. It's just a John yeah, right. Lurie show, right? It's like <laughs> that's that's like all like he is, and I would watch all of it. Yeah, I just wanted to hear this guy's mysticism. This mm-hmm. guy's a philosopher. I would follow this man, right? And he's just does it in the most unassuming, artless, like unimpressed with it even himself way. Well, and he the way he even brags about himself is just so like kind of off the cuff like yeah a lot of people came around wanted to talk about my plants talk about me i've done like it's, 60 lectures this year i'm probably the smartest person in this room <laughs> yeah. or or that i know it, no yeah it said as matter of factly as what he had for lunch mm-hmm. you know it's just a fact to him that he doesn't even care about one way or the other whenever anything he even calls out like a pissing contest you know like this is like i don't care like yeah. he does not care about that right like shuts it down so fat but nick cage some have said that he's an over-the-top actor. Mm. I've heard it said mm-hmm. about, about him. <laughs> but he's got a bit of a reputation. He's got a rep. But going big. His some of his best and I love Big Cage. Of course. I love a big cage. Yeah, yeah. Right? We're gonna get some big cage Snake Eyes, later in this marathon. Snake Eyes was one of the biggest. Mm-hmm. And that guy is a joy to watch for every minute of Snake Eyes. And he's on the screen for basically 98% of those <laughs> minutes, man. He owns it. Mm-hmm. But when he is doing his his most subtle, touching work is when he's playing weird guy who is sad. He is so good at the weird guy who is sad that he just becomes this man. Yeah. He looks so like such an odd guy if you saw the man in Pig walking down the street. Mm. But he is such a touching, tender smart sad weird guy right all these all these mandy is a different weird sad guy and this is just 
Man, Donald I, and Charlie. Is... That's what struck me so much watching Vampire's Kiss was just like, this is supposed to be a comedy, but it's sad because this mm-hmm. guy is playing it. You had gotten it. You'd it's gotten bleak. it kind of mentally mixed up with Once Bitten, yeah. the Jim Carrey one, because it was kind of built similarly <laughs> kind of to Once Bitten, yeah. which is an outright funny, great movie. Vampire's Kiss, always billed as a comedy. This is about a guy going through pain, yeah. right? And adaptation, like you said, I remember those trailers, right? From the minds of being John Malkovich. And then the music's like, bing, 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 bing. Yeah, it's Charlie's like, got it rough. <laughs> it's him sweating. <laughs> oh, oh I'm, you know, it, I'm a disaster. It's, I'm pathetic. It's such a self-hating and fascinating movie that goes in so many different directions. Like, it just pulled me emotionally in so many ways. The, the part I did not remember so much about Nick Cage, especially, is the sexual frustration. Oh, that sure. takes up a good like twenty minutes of this movie. <laughs> yeah. of him just a lot of I forgot there was like three different masturbation scenes. <laughs> I forgot there was him having fantasies about Judy Greer. I mean, who among us? <laughs> <laughs> That's God. Charlie Kaufman truly understands them. One of the great mind. things of watching this movie twenty years later and not having seen it for almost two decades is like. Judy fucking Greer showing up as, as, as Judy a Greer, twenty three year old waitress. I love her so much. So good. I love Judy Greer, but uh, man, what a yeah. what an eye they had. For, it's like I I got the I got the gal. I got the gal for this. Thank you, Charlie Kaufman. Yeah. We got to get Judy Greer into the fantasy scene. And uh, right? who's the other girl that was like, oh, Maggie Gyllenhaal in it? Oh, she's just good. be like, oh yeah, I it's totally like a brain forgot. factory in here. Yeah. God, so she was funny. so good. What a well cast movie. Tilda Swinton. Yes. So good in her part. Probably the first Tilda Swinton I would among, have known. Among them, sure, right? Yeah. And you know how we've talked before about the under eight minute Hall of Fame. These characters that are so important to a movie, but never get any kind of award acclaim mm-hmm. because they're only in one or two scenes, right? There's like a stigma. But Brian Cox, as screenwriting guru <laughs> of Robert McKee, a real yeah, man. A real person. A real person. Played incredibly. Brian Cox does, he's only in two scenes. But not only are they so important, but they are like two of the greatest scenes. Two great scenes. In a great movie. He's so great. Uh, he does this almost amazing. Albert Finney thing. Sure. Yeah, yeah. In this. Yeah, plays up the Irishness a lot in this one. A lot of yelling. A lot of Brian Cox yelling. <laughs> a lot of perfect. The thing people love Brian Cox for is that it's peak. Yeah. If you like Succession, go back and just watch these Brian Cox scenes in this movie. This is just perfect, yeah. right, man? When Nicolas Cage, when Donnie is talking about these rules for screen, just him arguing about there's no rules, Donnie. Screenwriting doesn't, like, and Donnie's taking, what, this guy's the seminars? The principles, yeah. <laughs> and he tacks up the, the Ten Commandments. Yeah. Uh, above God, Charlie Kaufman's I, typewriter. Robert McKee's Ten Commandments with Brian Cox's like serious <laughs> posed face. The fact that they're all written like ten Thou shalt not insult the audience. Just yeah. like this five hundred dollar seminar asshole. Fucking guy. This guy, right? <laughs> and how you know, it would be like uh I was, you know, really heavily involved in college radio and mm. really into all you know, music, and it's like when I'd find out my sister was just listening to fucking like Savage Garden. It's like, man, you <laughs> fucking kidding me? I could, you could be using me as a resource. I right. could be making you the 
fucking Big Brother cassette tapes. I assumed you were putting Ten Commandments of the radio station on the right. In the no, DJ no, booth. no, God, no. <laughs> you know, but like, man, Lauren, come on, we've lived together all this time. Let me, let me yeah. make you like a pavement mixtape. You don't got to be listening to. And it's just like this resentment that Charlie Kaufman's got for Donnie when he's paying for this $500 seminar and Charlie's just like laying out, just like, no, this is why you need to do this in your movie. Like this, he's just laying it out. And, but Donnie just is, sometimes you can't communicate with people, even if they share your genes. Well, the, the big thing I uh, really took away that I didn't get the first time watching it now is Donnie writing his thriller and his basic cliched overused (laughs) stuff. Yeah, that turns into a good movie, and I think the if not a good movie, a movie that a like Shane movie. Black, you could well, sell for a... the one thing I think that I've learned in the four years we've been doing this podcast is that like Whew. a movie doesn't have to be smart to be good, right? A movie doesn't have to be highbrow to be good. We've talked about a lot of good, fun movies, and uh, Charlie Kaufman thinking he's above the thriller. Right. In this, you know, he's better than the cliche <laughs> killer who calls himself the deconstructionist. No, that was a joke. And, oh, you and got then it, me. And then, it, and then it being the greatest script everyone has ever read, <laughs> universally right? loved, right? And it's a, uh, and then, and then uh, for Charlie Kaufman in this movie to then give Donnie the script, and the last act of the movie is Donnie writing Donnie Donald writing the. Uh, Oh yeah, him the just... thriller ending of this movie, and how? Who does that? Like who? Like I said, man, the pitch. Who when, acts when... above a movie and then makes and then ends the movie? Like it's such a. Uh, I don't know. I don't know even I know how to. Put I can't it into imagine words. the decisions this guy was making. Such like, a fun way you've... to fuck with people. You've you're a professional writer. I am a major amateur writer, <laughs> but I'm writing a book now, right? And I can't imagine the email I would get back when I turn in some proofs oh. and they're just not about what I'm watching, but they're about what I'm doing while I'm watching, what I'm supposed to be writing about. What? I couldn't do it. That would... So, yeah, you're writing a book about wrestling. What if you wrote a book about you... About my going, relationship with yeah. wrestling and how I'm struggling and to struggling write about to write wrestling. the book? <laughs> yeah. And how you're like... I'm just reviewing matches. That's not a book. I need to come up with a, a story. Am I good enough to write a narrative short story based around me right. ri- writing my book and, then and you, make it the book? You write me into the book, and I like <laughs> yeah, I commit is, a crime. This is the or book, something. also. Yeah. <laughs> and then in the book, I'm like, Eric, you gotta hide me. The cops are after me. And then we're watching wrestling together or like, something. We contracted you to do a specific thing. Like that had to be an answer that he was. Fully expected. I can't imagine the number of conversations Charlie Kaufman had with real people who are like, "Yeah, I, I, I know it's, I know you're in the movie, but it's not really you. It's, it's a fictionalized version of you. I, I, I know, I know you don't look good in it. I know. You yeah, know, it's like his manager <laughs> is a guy who's like joking about terrible things. Yeah, and thinks he can help with the script. The uh, Hollywood exec who hires him, and he's like, "I'm also, I wrote in a part where I." have a sexual fantasy about you i hope that's okay <laughs> i hope that's all right I hope that's cool yeah man this is such a it's imagine writing a book this would be like me finishing my book and then finding out unbeknownst to me it's going to be 
adapted into a movie. Then I find out I'm a major character in it and I have a drug addiction. Yeah, 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 exactly. And a torrid love affair with a swamp man. And you try to kill the guy who's writing the screenplay. <laughs> yeah. How insane would that be? This, I mean, what a wild story for Orlean, yeah. right? When you write this book about an orchid hunter and the work that Chris Cooper can do as a sincere orchid hunter, man. Yeah, that's what he used the palm fronds for. <laughs> when he is playing, you know, he won the Oscar when, when for he this, is, right? When he and, is talking to that cop, who's a, another great character actor, whose name I don't know, but... Great Jim, guy. Jim Beaver. There you go. <laughs> great character actor. We get great. This movie has such great character actors. We got a list of like eight character actors in the credits that weren't even in the movie. I know. It's, it's like, like, oh, they paid Steven Tobolowski just to exist? Not I, in the movie. I know. I was like, do I even bring up that Peter Jason says thanks and <laughs> yeah. that's it in the we, movie? There was like four major character <laughs> actors in a courtroom scene that we just saw basically as extras. Peter Jason just does a pan by enough to be like, Wait, was that Gary? J- Is that the Indian dude from Smoke Signals? <laughs> Did he just play an uncredited dad? What? Yeah, it it's... blurs reality so much. You're suddenly remind you're seeing this slumpy dude, and then suddenly a minute later, you're like, "Oh shit, that's right, 1999, Catherine Keener." Mm. oh jesus mm-hmm. like man what a what a hit to the senses this whole movie is <laughs> right there's yeah. real there's real people in the movie it's just john malkovich john cusack just walks by a scene great he didn't cameo need to be from here cusack <laughs> cusack just does Good a guy for doing that look to the camera in the background it came back to film these <laughs> he got in his like ponytail wig yeah. for, for one walk by no lines Catherine Keener got. She's like, I have to get down to Maxine. Wait, I, I would love. To, me? I would love if they had to rebuild that whole <laughs> tiny hallway just for that scene in the move. In this, they're like, they're like, you want to do stuff on the set of Malkovich? We tore that down. We tear that stuff down. Yeah, or is he just so brilliant that he's thinking, just like, you know, we should film some B roll, some some meta <laughs> next level voyeurism just in takes case. on these, just in case. We'll I insert that. Cage in a few. Uh, is Spike yeah. Jones just out there making four movies at once? He's making his own documentaries about the movies that he's. he's making and he's always thinking ahead he's leaving his poor wife back in his tokyo hotel room and she's falling <laughs> in love with some pockmarked old guy like man it's got the life this guy leads i looked it up i look up spike jones it's just a trend that repeats every two years for his whole career mm. as he's doing his movie it's like he dated karen O for one year and they lived together and now don't speak he dated it's like uh, all these cool amazing art types he just like lives with for a year and then it's just him going on to his project and it's just like well also it's like if you lived with this guy and all he did was talk about all the stuff that he wants to do and does yeah but when you think about meryl streep being attracted to this man la roach Mm -hmm. who can talk at length expertly about so many things that you've never even thought of as like like if you met a model train enthusiast at a certain point, you'd be like, all right, this guy is talking a lot about model trains. Yeah. And Chris Cooper is just moving on to these interesting, weird hobbies that you've never even considered having. And he sounds like he knows more about it than any man else mm-hmm. that it, you know that's ever had this hobby, right? And so you get this sense of Spike Jones as this guy who gets fascinated by this one heavy thing, right? And throws himself and his whole work life totally in to doing this project. And other creative types might float through attracted to that. Sofia Coppola, Karen O, like cool people that are own their own real brilliant artists, right? But maybe uh, just like Meryl Streep is fascinated by this outsider's take, who this man is, 
and how different it is from her kind of artistic take and her kind of specific talent. Mm -hmm. You know, you see the way these people can be drawn to each other, even though the Streep character is from high society New York and this guy is from, like... yeah. (laughs) <laughs> the the swamps and and in the movie they're very clear that it's a fleeting attraction yeah and that it's uh what, what's the 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 last line of the book has that very like it's fleeting and out of reach kind of vibe right and uh you know it's and yeah then you wonder like is spike jones aware he has to be right right like, he doesn't he can't i i'd be shocked if a man can make such tender movies without feeling <laughs> himself right as funny and silly as some of the stuff he's done like his i mean her made me feel things yeah a lot right for more ways than one <laughs> fun story to go into that i won't <laughs> and uh you know that'll be its own episode yeah man all these all these things and you know when she says it's about disappointment or like it's just mm-hmm. a flower my dad can talk to you for hours about antique glass bottles right he's gone on digs for these bottles he's snuck onto condemned properties just to dig for old bitters flasks that's the thing he fell in love with that's the thing he fell in love with and could it he has talked about it with me for hours of my life we have Mm -hmm. so much storage space at their old house that's filled with old bottles in boxes labeled like to crazy degrees (laughs) he goes to bottle conventions bottle shows he has a weekly bottle club he attends there's enough people in our county to have a bottle club. <laughs> and that's meaning more than one. <laughs> and that is like his thing. Yeah. He's gone on vacations around visiting another guy and my mom visiting with that guy's wife and talking about their bottle collections. Wow. This is what they did, right? right? And Chris Cooper is this guy who just is that and is a new version of that every few years until I and Meryl Streep sees and sees that, you know. It's possible to just fall in love with a part of somebody or how somebody feels about something. It's easy for me to get little crushes on mm. people that I barely have interactions with because I like people. And you have a little crush and then something kind of dumb and fleeting ruins it for no reason. You just stop thinking about something, right? And then it's over. And not everything has to end with something fulfilling. Sometimes it mm. isn't. She sees it and it's it's just a flower. And so she's heard how romanticized this man talked so eloquently about it and what he loved about it and this beauty of preservation and the knowledge he had to gain to get around just the fact that you couldn't preserve these things in in state-owned land right and then she sees it and it's just like as passionate as somebody can talk about it if it's not your passion your interest in love for it can only go so far right right i can talk to you all day about pro wrestling you're never going to like pro wrestling and be able to explain why you like it as much as I do. And that's good. I'm not going to write a book about it. No, <laughs> right? Like there's something, we are, we're all going to have our things mm-hmm. that we can throw ourselves at. and But you can't necessarily drag along somebody on your own thing, right? Sometimes it can just be a disappointment. Sometimes it can just not interest them. Mm-hmm. And I just love this fleeting interest that they have with each other. Let me tell you, man, I... I love them harmonizing over a dial tone. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. You put that in something something bad like that Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Zoe Deschanel one. You put that in 500 Endless Days of Summer. I was like, this fucking dumb dial tone scene. These twee assholes. Mm-hmm. But Chris Cooper and Meryl Streep 
Her doing drugs and then rolling on a bed like a little schoolgirl, talking to them on the phone like when I used to get excited to talk to girls on our house rotary <laughs> dial phone in our living room, you know, when I was 13. Yeah. Brilliant. She scene. sneaks up on you on this movie. Yes. She really starts out as just kind of this placeholder, almost feeling character of like, this is the person interviewing LaRoche. So we get to see LaRoche through her. She's our access point to the yeah. better character, right? Yeah, exactly. And she's just right now when he says, and she's got her little opinions. And then we see her kind of have her doubts and have her desires and then stay you know she's awake at night is that harry Shearer as her uh, husband <laughs> no that was it's another real dude playing it's curtis hansen okay the director harry <laughs> Shearer. <laughs> no there's enough guys with like jew afros in the movie they're like we can't get Shearer in too but uh can't cast giamatti yeah by the time she's by the time she's yeah doing drugs and then <laughs> plotting murder you're just like holy shit meryl streep is like going for it yes, in this movie man and she's such a person that, of course, she would do that. She does really fun movies all the time. But for some reason, she's got this kind of uh, holier than thou almost, you know, maybe well, at that time, especially just like she does the, again, like she does the highbrow stuff that Charlie Kaufman would write. She's street. So, of she, course, Charlie Kaufman writes her as like this drug addict. <laughs> What's so good. So, like, you don't hear people praise Meryl Streep enough. She's flown under the radar yeah, a lot. You never hear this. It doesn't this. come up very much. But, <laughs> but seriously, like, especially around this time, you know, her reputation, she's the actress that's been nominated for, you know, double digits Academy Awards, right? Yeah. Like, it's boring to nominate her at this point. She got nominated for this movie, yeah. Yeah, it was, you know... Nick Cage got nominated, yeah, and, and then Chris Cooper won. You know, she's... We talked about Kate Blanchett, who's always so mm-hmm. perfect and so dialed in and so attuned to these people that... It's it's like Jordan. People get sick of voting for Jordan. People got sick of voting for Barry Bonds for MVP awards. Give it to somebody else one year. We get yeah. it. We can't give it to this guy seven years in a row. And so Streep is managing to be, you know, the most acclaimed actress of our lifetime while also having these roles that just hide right in plain sight. Oscar-nominated roles that you just forget were this good. And around this time, she still had the rep of playing so serious right. in films. She's supposedly a very, like, joyful, funny, upbeat woman. But she always plays... It's just like how we don't know anything about Kate Blanchett. Mm-hmm. I don't even know her sexual affiliation. She's either married <laughs> to the guy and has eight kids, or she could be a lesbian. I have no idea. Right. And, you know, for her to take this studious New Yorker character, it's no different than the plot to, like, uh, the African queen. Mm. She ends up doing her own Hepburn mm-hmm. Bogart thing with him you know but there's funnier elements of like uh i don't know one of the kurt russell goldie hawn movies (laughs) where he's the like overboard captain ron i don't know he's the roughneck and she's the more higher society woman there's a romance in the stone quality yeah to meryl streep in this well it's funny because she does have that reputation of like I'm just looking through IMDb. It's like Marvin's Room. It's like right. that kind of stuff. It is prestige, sad cinema. But she's also, like, in the 90s, she does Death Becomes Her. She does The River Wild. She does this movie uh, in 2002. Yeah. I mean, it's, she it's almost... And, then, and it's like, right? she almost does, like, even more of that highbrow, like, The Hours... Well, sure, there's and Julia, and, Ju- Julia and Julia, you know, which is which is incredible Doubt for she her. Did a, Devil Wears Prada. Yeah. Obviously, the woman's but it's like she incredible. yeah she'll do it she did she did some movie where she was like an aging rock star 
That was like a terrible. <laughs> yeah. Like she'll do whatever. She had weird prosthetic teeth and big little lies. It's just so funny that she always got that kind of uh, high silkwood, uh, you know, deer hunter kind of. When you get nominated rep. for, you know, when you're already in the double digits of Oscars, you know, people are just going to automatically visually associate you with nothing but prestige snooty cinema yeah right you forget her her fun side and seeing her not doing outright comedy in this but adding such an interesting layer to as you said the woman who's just kind of was originally acting as the entry point to chris cooper Mm -hmm. she could that we've seen that happen a lot and i think this charlie kaufman's such a good writer that it plays on our expectations for these characters the whole movie's talking about not wanting to... De- I don't want to evolve the characters. I don't want anybody to learn anything. So we get used to how these people are supposed to act and how these movies usually write them. Mm-hmm. And that woman journalist role is often the thankless role of all thankless roles. Right. She's the woman to get wowed by a smart-talking southern boy and have her affair. And, like, it's no different than the Prince of Tides in that regard, sure. right? Or, or that kind of that Sandra Bullock where she's, like, she gets to be the nice mom to the young black guy. And there's this, you know, the drama. <laughs> you see a blindside yeah. kind of yeah, element yeah, to yeah. it. <laughs> or just kind of like, you know, I'm the vehicle of goodness to uh, show the larger world this LaRoche character, right? You know, and, and uh, yeah, by the time she is... Got a gun on Nick Cage. It's <laughs> and, and and again, like, would that be as fun and effective with anyone but Meryl Streep? Yes. Who's who? Like you said, is you're completely you've subverted what you think you're going to see Meryl Streep do in this movie. I this the the roles were played so well, and the writing was so who they were up on that. Like, like you said, these people were. I didn't. I wasn't as great as Meryl Streep is, and this is one of my favorite roles of hers. I was so in love with her by the end of this movie. And so, so important to it is this real chemistry between her and Cooper where they're just talking on the phone. Mm. And I'm seeing Meryl Streep in this movie as this, I don't know what, they're both in their early 50s in this movie. But just the way she's acting and the int- the real interest and that real love that you can, she's just fallen for this guy, right? And it mm-hmm. feels so real. And it's just like, she looked beautiful. Like, sitting yeah. on her hotel room floor on the phone, kind of like, Playing with her hair. It wasn't played up for comedy. Her rolling around on the bed, kicking her feet. The drugs wasn't played. This could have been easily like granny smoking pot mm-hmm. <laughs> in lesser hands, right? The funny montage of her doing drugs and watching her own hand or some dumb shit, right? And instead, it's just like, first off, I would not need that much convincing to do orchid drugs with Chris Cooper. <laughs> like very little hesitation. If he calls me Susie Q, the way I'm in. God, the way that's he, it. Like that moment where it's like she's waiting for him to say Susie Q on the phone, and hey, the way she Susie smiles Q, when he does. The way his tooth, that yeah. tooth whistles there. Mm. Hey, Susie, he's got this kind of LQ Jones thing, but if LQ Jones had no incisors up top, right? <laughs> that same kind of southern handsome fox. Mm-hmm. When I say fox, I mean LQ Jones looks like a literal. Like if they drew a cartoon fox <laughs> as a man, right? And Cooper's got a little bit of that, you know, Definitely. just with no front teeth. I could see that. And there's such a charm to somebody who's sincere. I find a lot of charm in sincerity now. It's very easy. We're sarcastic people, and it's easy to cloak things in sarcasm. But mm-hmm. when you meet a person who 
doesn't matter if you think they're smarter than you or dumber than you or what, but they're sincere. That's really charming to me. When no, somebody doesn't feel the need to put on any airs, they're real. Like, that's power move. Mm, that, right, right. That's powerful, right? Confidence. That's that's, that's confidence. That's yeah. confidence that a lot of people don't have. That's I mean, what Donald Kaufman has that everyone loves about him. That's yeah. why Catherine Keener's over at the house reading the script. <laughs> Catherine Keener's at my house? Yeah. That's what that's what Charlie Kaufman never has in this movie <laughs> is that self confidence to be himself. Yeah, and it's that because he wants to kiss the girl, he wants to say something funny at the party, but he just never can bring himself to do that. Yeah, you know, and that's a big part of that inner monologue that I think is so great. Is like you see that he wants to be this bigger. He knows better what he person. has to do, right? Yeah, and he, he knows just, what to do. And I can, I can relate to that <laughs> feeling of just like I know I need to like be bold yes. in this moment. I, and you don't, or or you didn't, or you think about something later, or whatever. Yeah, seeing sincerity is—I'm really charmed by that. I said earlier that I fall, I you know, I get crushes really easily on on anything. It's just really sometimes I just find humans charming, and sincerity and vulnerability is really—it's really noticeable to me now, right? Mm. And seeing this, just Chris Cooper, the sincerity brings to to LaRoche. Is so strong, and I'm just kind of falling in love with this couple that's only talking on the phone, right? But I would snort that orchid and fuck Chris <laughs> Cooper in this movie. I get it. Like, I get it. It's real. In the first five minutes of this movie, Nicolas Cage sets up everything that he says he doesn't want to happen with his script. Mm-hmm. And to a note, we get every single thing that shouldn't be happening in adaptation. I think it's one of those movies that lays out exactly what's going to happen very clearly and then seems so jumbled, yet it really lays everything out so linearly. Mm-hmm. We've been bringing up everything everywhere all at once a lot. Yeah. Didn't it feel like this movie just conquered every single sentiment and trick that just got like a zillion Oscars? 20 years later doesn't feel like charlie kaufman's written every like i I did that idea i already (laughs) did this i did this yeah i did eternal sunshine i got the oscar for it you guys are all still trying to do eternal sunshine yeah it's that yeah exactly that uh let's be wacky but also with a heart yeah and i think yeah that was very much the vibe when i was watching eternal or uh everything everywhere at, at once it was like yeah, I've I've seen this. I get I get what they're doing. I've you seen know, the best guy. They're being to... <laughs> outlandish to tell a really core emotional story about being around people and connecting to people or not connecting to people and why you only get one chance to do this and uh you got to make the most of it and I would bet my life that's that pretty the... much every Charlie Kaufman movie. Yeah. The Daniels had a copy of the Michelle Gondry and Spike Jones DVDs. Those guys, those guys are pulling everything, man. Charlie Kaufman's done this. Yeah, everybody's still trying to write Eternal Sunshine. Every two years, we get a new Eternal Sunshine. It's supposed to be the one. He did it, and I'm sure we could go back and watch movies in the 70s and 80s that that this movie were kind of you know they even bring up the mockumentary and and uh, the idea of yeah, there's never been a new genre. It's like this movie's definitely taking a stab at being its own genre. Yes, and there is just of a like certain point mock of... you thriller or something. <laughs> yeah, you know, Spike Jones really found this way in his movies to like break the fourth wall without doing any sort of actual fourth wall 
breaking. Mm-hmm. He's not breaking any rules. He's talking about the rules, but not breaking them. You know, he's discussing rules and in a way making fun of them, but it never comes off as Robert Downey Jr. and Kiss Kiss Bang Bang going, record stop. I know you noticed what I was doing. Like, there's no addressing. He's addressing the audience directly, but not doing it directly. He's Nicolas Cage lays out everything about the movie, but it never comes off like Robert Downey Jr. walking on the screen being like, what the fuck was that, right? I know what you're thinking here, but... You know, even as yeah. it's making fun of voiceover narration, then it's guiding me being like, wait, is voice, am I dumb for liking voiceover narration? Is it? It's like, no, but I love old dumb film noir narration. I love it. I don't care if it's describing stuff I've seen. Sometimes I love it. Other times I'm like, man, voiceover narration is dumb. Well, and uh, yeah, I love the stuff about the voiceover because there's so much voiceover. Constant. This movie is all voiceover Which, in again, some spots. Nick Cage has to play not only against his fake twin but he has to sit there at a, at a typewriter while a voiceover is going for extended periods of time and seeming like he's thinking like that had to be so there's so much acting so while, much going yeah, on right to, acting while your own character's inner, inner monologue is yeah. what everybody's hearing he has to do that a lot but that yeah that moment and I know I've brought it up on the show before just as such a memorable moment of him having this voiceover narration while Robert McKee is having his lecture and being interrupted by God help you if you use voiceover narration. God help you. God help you. God help you. What a Brian and, Cox part. Man. And then I don't think you get voiceover narration the rest <laughs> of the movie. Like it stops. And, and it has that very specific, like he goes outside and it's very quiet. Yes. And there's not voiceover. Wow. And then I think at the end, you, you there's some voiceover where he's writing the script about like what Donald says at the end. But uh, I just always, yeah, it's like, Here's the trick. Here, let me show you. I'm here's this is this is this the is movie what, trick, yeah. and I just reminded you that it's a trick, and also, it's better for it. It's better for me pointing it out. Yeah, it's more effective somehow. It's, it's a movie that keeps both giving you no idea where it's going to go next, and it keeps telling you exactly where it's going to go next. Mm-hmm. And they're like you said, they're doing the magic trick right in front of you, and I'm just sitting there, so engaged in this movie and so interested in these real people who could have come off like fake caricatures yeah. of people. Well, especially at the end there when, when we get into the, like they've, they kidnap him and they're driving him out to kill him. It's like the fact that you care, the fact that I remember and, and watch it again, still feel that like, Oh boy, Charlie's in trouble now. <laughs> yeah, they've stepped in it now, right? Once it's when he's tucking at the beginning, you're like on his side, no matter how sweaty he is, no matter how slumpy he looks in his sweater. When he's like, I don't want to cram in sex or guns or a car chase or any of these things. And here you are watching sex and get, suddenly Meryl Streep's just have she's just riding a guy. She's grinding. What? <laughs> You 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 were told up front She's doing that a line of orchid blow yeah, right? grinding you, this hillbilly. We are told a hundred minutes ago that we're not getting sex crammed in here. We're not getting car chases. We're not. And then as we're seeing it, it's kind of just like, what is? We're given these real characters suddenly doing these things we were kind of promised wouldn't happen, yeah. and now they're all happening. And you're seeing the grinding. You're doing you're <laughs> doing those green man that orchid powder. That that looks like a good high. This is a convincing sell. Oh, if orchid powder is real, this seems like a real good thing. She was having fun. Yeah, our orchid powder pod is going to be crazy. <laughs> but, 
But yeah, I don't want people growing or learning life lessons. And the whole movie is just growing and learning lessons from that growth. All of it. Mm -hmm. It's so well done. And two of the most brutal on-film car crashes I've ever seen. Yeah. Like, awful. Scary, scary stuff. car crashes. Guys going through the windshield at the end there. That's one of the... That's That's brutal stuff. That's the most, uh, like... That's the lasting image for me. When I think back to seeing it, and it's Donald lying there through the windshield. Mm-hmm. And just how, what a gut punch that was. You know, both car crashes in this are so, this movie just keeps throwing stuff at you, right? Mm-hmm. Both going in ridiculous directions and then just threatening to derail as he's spiraling and keeps getting worse news and keeps making his own life worse mm. for him, right? Then by the time you're getting guns, you know, you're learning more about LaRoche. That's a tough scene. Yeah. That that realism and of what he's gone through and how many ways his life's changed even since then. How brief the shot was of him with his hurricane, destro- the tornado destroyed nursery. Mm-hmm. Right? A fascinating man. And this other car crash, still right in the middle of the most ridiculous scene. Meryl Streep is chasing a man through a swamp. With a gun? They just shot him. Donald gets shot, and he's commenting on how crazy it is that he's actually been shot. Yeah. Yeah. And then the most realistically violent car crash, just out of nowhere, head-on, through the windshield. If I bet Meryl Streep was thinking this was crazy when she was reading about her, like, we need to kill him. I don't want this man writing. Like, suddenly, this is such a turn. But imagine Susan Orlean. He goes, wait, I kill them? Yeah, exactly. I demand their murder? I think it might even be crazy. Like, to me, if someone wrote a movie about me like this, and it was like, wait, I'm going to have sex with the guy that I wrote a book about? Like, <laughs> but, but I, you know, I didn't, right? Yeah, that's me. Like, <laughs> like, but everybody knows I wrote the book. And now it's just like the drug fueled sex orgies of Susan Orley. Like, that's not, oh my God. I feel like I'd be a lot more comfortable with, like, oh yeah, make me a total cold blooded killer. That's fine. <laughs> But and just having sex but, with swamp men to have sex with the guy gator in wranglers in really? the van we're gonna be in the van having sex all right yeah sure how much is that check gonna be <laughs> <laughs> couldn't have been much honestly for a charlie kaufman movie i don't know a book about a movie and but mom called it psychologically taught <laughs> <laughs> and I love- it's like sitcom jokes stuck in there about mom calling it psychologically taught. How mom is like the one reading all of Donnie's traps. <laughs> the unseen mother, so you know. Good. That was they could have got Stephen Tobolowski for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we didn't use those scenes. And uh dude, nobody's ever written about a movie about flowers before. <laughs> Dropping flowers of algae. <laughs> oh Donnie. I love Is him. there a such thing as a bad movie, Donnie? <laughs> Probably not. All Donnies, right? Somebody's going to come out with like a real jerk of a Donnie, mm. but man. I know one Donnie that's kind of a jerk. Well. Not in the movies, but. <laughs> <laughs> he appears briefly in Home Alone too, but. <laughs> but yeah, you know, you're talking about when you went out of your way to see a Spike double feature. Yeah. Two of their best movies, Adaptation, 25th Hour. Now, I don't know if Spike Lee could do being John Malkovich or mm. her. And I don't know if Spike Jones could do like. Do the right thing, <laughs> or it's true, right? Malcolm X. <laughs> probably good that Spike Jones doesn't do Malcolm <laughs> probably X. Probably should not do. Now that, that I yeah. think about, it. although if he got Johnny Knoxville, 
I'd check it out. I think he can use that connection. Use his jackass connection. Johnny Knoxville, but like the X in Knoxville. Yeah, like exactly. Real big. X. Knoxville. Knoxville. Malcolm. And, but man, this is, these four movies that he's made are just special. He is, wasn't until I was really putting myself back in 02, which again is kind of part of that lost era of, you know, that super important yeah. era that I'm just like, I remember so many details about seeing these, you know, 99 to 04 movies in the theaters and talking about them with people. And then like, yeah, I haven't gone back to them. This has been coming up more and more. So we're diving back into these early 2000s, uh, which are still where some of my all-time favorites exist. But thinking about going to see Paul Thomas Anderson movies and El Maldivar and Spike Jones is just right there, just mm-hmm. as important. And then this guy did Sabotage. Yeah. If that guy only did Sabotage, he's already, he's already <laughs> made. So, yeah, I'm thinking, geez, her was 10 years ago. What is the next? What, what am I getting next? Yes, I did love Jackass Forever. But mm-hmm. I want to see the next Spike original. I need to see it. You know he, ha- he can't just fade out. Well, and then I feel like uh, Charlie Kaufman, I love him. But as a director, you know, Synecdoche, man, you want to talk about a downer of a movie. Yeah. Jesus, that is a actually, like, I felt kind of sick after watching that movie. <laughs> yeah, man. When and, you're already uh, get, when you know, like, it's Charlie Kaufman and he signed up Philip Seymour Hoffman, yeah. you're like, you're getting some deep it's depression. A, that's a rough watch. And his other, uh, you know, Anomalisa, great movie, very sad. I've heard the other one on Netflix is very sad. Oh, it's like with Plemons and maybe we Buckley. need to get him and Jones back together. Like maybe one lifts the other a little bit or There's Jones a... has got the playful, like adaptation throughout has a playfulness about it that uh, I think really you need because yes. it is such a, you know, Charlie Kaufman is, a, is such a downer character that it, it could be tough. The levity to stick of with that, the vibe. levity of adaptation does not take away from the seriousness mm-hmm. at all. These things don't have to be a difficult emotional slog, <laughs> you know, to learn something, right? The levity that they create together yeah. from this really almost helps the the impactful stuff land even more. You know, when... That's what I think, yeah, you, you buy into the thriller stuff at the end because you've been... No matter how ridiculous. Yeah, I don't you know. know. There's just something, yeah, we've said it, several times already but it's just such an engaging fun it's like you're watching sad dudes be sad and it's like <laughs> the most fun you'll have yeah. watching a sad dude struggle at his job yeah. to write a, a screenplay and the the trailers was all just like nicholas cage arguing with nicholas cage like it right. was a clumps i that's what i remember i remember just being like i should get a muffin Coffee and muffin is good. And it's like, <laughs> oh, man, this guy's going to be just, just Hilarious. an anguished writer. Just like, and he's going insane. He's seeing double. Boing. And then and then it was always that uh, Donald Kaufman doing his little oh, push yeah. in the bush. Push in the bush. <laughs> like, of course, that's the pull, right? That's so perfect. Of course, that would be the pull. You're taking all these like, it's Ron Livingston being a, being a total like douche in the office. Yeah. Like, of course, those are the pulls. Like, but man. Yeah. And you're told, <laughs> you know, it's a lot of broken mirrors, I think, to, like, show his fragmented <laughs> self. It's making fun of all these things that are make funnable. But I'll be honest, I've written 
hundreds of thousands of words now for something that now seems crazy to me that like feels like I'm writing a lot about this uh, <laughs> this very niche subject right and I've always been really fascinated by the actors who sometimes when I'm reading a script a good script can sound like shit mm how Mulholland Drive was able to have Naomi Watts making fun of this garbage dialogue. And then you're in the middle of her audition scene and you realize like, oh, this is the same dialogue. And it was so good. Right. And so re- like, wow, like this guy, this movie took a amazing turn right out from under us. And it's got to be tough to see words on a page and know exactly how you can deliver them and how you'll be allowed to deliver them. You have to have confidence in this material. I'm sure there's a lot of stuff that sounded good on the page and it didn't work mm. on the screen. And so you're hearing some of these things, the broken mirrors to show. I bet there's movies where I've saw good versions of that. You see that stuff in like Apocalypse Now and it's like, this is cinema. <laughs> this is real. Well, yeah, it just, it, it, this movie also, watching it again, really reminded me just how funny Nick Cage is without yep. being funny. Without being a comedian, he's being real characters, and they're hilarious the way they interact with each other. The, the way Charlie Kaufman is like trying to explain why the script doesn't work, and then he goes, "You're right, taught psychologically taught." You're right. <laughs> yeah, he's you're just so <laughs> he's trying to explain to a guy how, why it's stupid that three different people in three different places yeah. are the same guy, and it's this problem of trying to so- explain something so obvious to a guy that's not. To an it. idiot, yeah. Yeah, and it's just like, you know what, yeah. Yeah, it's psychologically great. taught, you're right. And then, yeah, it's this thing where, like, when we're driven to explain something sometimes, when at the end, sometimes it's okay to just let a guy exist, mm-hmm. right? And he's struggling with that the whole time. And somehow it all works. I'm sure people at the time, I'm sure there was people that thought, well, the ending got pretty ridiculous, that somehow didn't pick up on the whole it's all ridiculous. It's all a disappointment. Yeah. You know? It's got to end. And It's a movie. It's still without without need- meaning to. You learned something. You learned lessons. People people succeeded and evolved, right? It showed it all. We did it. This was this deserved the acclaim it got and it deserved Now that I'm seeing what they're willing to like make a whole award season about. You see, it could have been the exact same thing. This could have been Nicolas Cage already had an Oscar. This could have been the new defining mm-hmm. Nicolas Cage role. Should have looked up who actually won that year. Well, you know, but... it's and uh, the unbearable weight of massive talent is a, another great example of like a silly action uh, send up of a movie that had some uh, real stuff to say about being a person and aging yes. and it was a it was an ex- existential crisis movie about yeah. Nicolas Cage playing Nicolas Cage that also had some of the most ridiculous action comedy slapstick yeah it had its cake it ate it too I thought it was one of my favorite movies I saw last year oh that year was the year of like god this takes me this was some movies that I watched in 2002 and never watched again like gangs in New York oh, Chicago yeah, yeah. right the pianist <laughs> That's what Nick That's Cage, right. Nick Cage lost out to the the Adrian Brody. The role in Nick Cage's career was well, this guy Sorry Donald, Man. you had a fat suit. Brody lost the weight. Brody Brody played a Holocaust survivor straight. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Nick Cage played a screenwriter and his fake twin brother. You know, maybe not as straight. Maybe maybe he should have played a little more 
<laughs> yeah, that was there. That was a Holocaust, oh, right? Yeah. And you know, Nicole Kidman in the hours had a fake nose. Mm-hmm. I guess it wasn't as interesting as Meryl Streep just being a real woman, you know? Julianne Moore in Far From Heaven. God, that was a good one. All right. Well, sure. Far From Heaven was that year, too. That's another great 2002. But, man, I'm so glad adaptation is still this good. Mm-hmm. Better. I, I understand even more about it now. I was 21. Exactly. You right. know? These people had lived lives. These people were 40 and up. He's right? supposed to be 40 in this movie, I think he said at some point. Tough which, 40 on I got to say Looking like I do at 40, feeling pretty good right now. Freshly 40, feeling pretty good. uh? This Charlie's confidence is through the roof. I might have a bit of a hunch, but not quite as bad as... Yeah, he's got a real slump, real slooch in this movie, huh? My hair's thick as hell. (laughs) It's true. It's great out of hair. And, uh, yeah, these people, you know, it's like watching Before Sunset when I was... 25 versus before sunset when i'm 40 right it lands mm-hmm. better now it's new it's it's more me right <laughs> and this is like yeah these people like we've now lived long enough where we've seen who can impress us and who can still kind of wow us it's fun when we meet a person who can kind of like i like listening to this guy mm. I like you know you get a new coworker out of nowhere and you find out oh we share this you know it's nice and this just my connection to this comes from such an unexpected little ways. You know, this movie, it's really grown with the, the ways I've grown. This is, uh, it's really launched up my list of favorites. Nice. It's really, this is an important flick. If, if, this, if you also have that weird uh, frozen in amber time about 2002 to 2004, haven't watched Garden State in a while. Huh. <laughs> you, know, you know, haven't gone back to those. Uh, may not hit the same. May not hit the state. The same yeah. uh, as that, but find this movie, do this movie just to see 1999 Catherine Keener and 2002 Judy Greer. Yeah, right. You get to see two seconds of Peter Jason. <laughs> you get a lot. Yeah. And Nick Cage is perfect. Everybody's perfect. It's, yeah. it's a per- perfect movie. Perfect movie? Is perfect I'm movie? Go- I think so. I it think might I'm be. Go- it's, it's, it's right up there, man. Yeah. This is our movie. This is a movie. We oh, yeah. we love talking movies. This, this is a it, picture. Yeah. I'm Eric. I'm Charlie. It came to this. It did. Thank you for listening with us here. God, we got it. This did this did Spike Jones just take it away from his own Spike cast? One of the two best Spike film directors ever. It's gotta be. Yeah. The <laughs> other did Spike Jones and his City Slickers make movies? He was probably great too. But Nicolas Cage, God. Cage is uh, gonna roll on. We're going to have some more Cage. Different Cage coming up next. Very different. Different beast. Presumably. Yeah. Presumably the next one's going to be different. Yeah. If you're a little disappointed with this Cage, <laughs> you're going to love the next Cage. If the best if you Nicolas like this Cage, Cage, you might be, uh, yeah, you might be a little hesitant if at the, the next. best Nicolas Cage performance didn't do it for you, well, <laughs> yeah. Thanks for listening. Thank you. And good night.